Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Our next guest says at the beginning of the third quarter, investors sit in the uncomfortable middle. Her commentary is dotted with words like murky and is generally just a little uncomfortable to read as well. Let's bring in Katie Nixon, CIO at Northern Trust Wealth Management. Katie, when do we get out of this murky middle? Good morning, Bonnie. First of all, thank you so much for having me. And I think it's going to be some time. I mean, we're, we're being really driven by, by the coronavirus news, and that news seems to be going in the wrong direction, frankly. So I think it's going to keep investors in this middle. And when I say middle, I mean in between sort of phase one, which is the, da- the downturn, to a phase two where you have more clarity and confidence, frankly, in there being a recovery. So... Katie, I guess we're, to a certain extent, this market has been backstopped by uh, the U.S. Federal Reserve and just easy monetary policy on a global basis. How concerned are you about that being the primary support or primary driver of this market? Thanks, Paul. That's a great question. And while we're confident that that policy will be there and will continue to provide a backstop, I think, you know, Fed Chair Powell said it best when he said, you know, the, the Fed can provide liquidity but does not uh, guarantee solvency. So the longer that this crisis continues, um, the more at risk um, we see the, not just the economy but potentially even the market. So certainly the Fed's going to be there to provide the support uh, in this in-between, but we really are going to have to get uh, past this uh, pandemic phase and into an economic recovery so we can forestall some of the solvency issues that that can result from a very prolonged um, downturn. Katie, when do we see price discovery, or if we have seen it, will we need to see you know a second round of price discovery when the Fed starts to back off a little bit? Well, I, we don't think the Fed's going to back off. Um, and actually, it's interesting. Um, there's been sort of a, a, a leveling off of the, or there had been a leveling off of the Fed's balance sheet over the last couple of weeks, but we have seen it tick up. Um, recently, so we don't think the Fed's going to back off, and I think you're going to see as soon as as there tends to be any price discovery in, in the wrong direction, you'll see a doubling down by uh, by policymakers. Um, so we think that you know that's certainly where we are right now. So okay, so as we head into or the meat of this earnings season, Katie, what are you kind of looking for here? I mean, I guess the second quarter obviously is a, a throwaway quarter for just about everybody. What are you really looking for? Yeah, so it's a throwaway quarter in, in terms of the actual results because I think it, it's just such a wild card. Um, so I, what we're looking for is we're listening to managements. We're, we're following the narrative on what they see in terms of trends. Um, you know, are they seeing recoveries? Um, are they seeing uh, declines? Um, so we're really looking to, uh, to managements and to the conference calls, frankly, to give us some guidance. And frankly, I, I think, you know, as most companies have pulled back on, on giving forecasts and giving um, estimates to Wall Street, everyone's sort of playing, playing in the dark here. There's no informational advantage for anyone because we're all sort of at the mercy of, of the, the track of the coronavirus, and it's so uncertain. 
So, so what happens with a portfolio at Northern Trust Wealth Management? I mean, have you clients calling up and asking for you to be proactive and to find them something a little bit different at this time, Katie? Or are they generally happy to stick with the sort of longer term view that you had before the pandemic? So, Bonnie, so our clients are, are, are typically very long-term oriented, and, you know, each of our portfolios is customized to each client's unique goals and objectives. So our clients have full transparency into why their portfolio is designed the way, the way that it is. And, and it's been so interesting because during the, the turmoil of, um, of early 20, uh, 2020 and into the downturn and then obviously into the upturn, our clients were, were very calm. Um, they were very confident in the long-term portfolio allocation. We didn't get panicked phone calls, and we're not getting them right now. Um, I, so I think our clients are, are, are very um, comfortable sitting, sitting where they are. Now, that said, the longer that this goes on, the, the more that the news on the pandemic um, is not in a positive direction. I think we are starting to hear a little bit more about risk aversion, um, you know, do I have enough cash and fixed income to sustain me through what could be a prolonged period of uncertainty here? All right. So, Katie, wh- where are you f- seeing the most opportunity here, given kind of your economic outlook, your outlook for the pandemic? Yeah, so our biggest overweight from a tactical position right now is high yield. Um, we think that the high yield market is well supported. Uh, clearly, we see a U-shaped recovery. We don't see a, a, a another economic downturn. So we do see a recovery um, over a long-term time horizon. Default rates have probably been overstated in the market. Um, Fallen angel risk has certainly been overstated in the market. So we are um, pretty comfortable with high yield. We are assuming, you know, a yield to worst here of, you know, between 65 and 7%. That's a pretty good risk-adjusted return over a 12-month time horizon for, for investors. So that's where we do see some value here. Katie Nixon, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your perspective. As always, Katie Nixon, Chief Investment Officer for Northern Trust Wealth Management, uh, giving us her thoughts on the market here. And I guess uh, the good folks at Northern Trust, Vanya, looking for a U-shaped recovery, and that gives them some support for selected areas within high yield. Yes, indeed. It's uh, an interesting one, really, because looking for a little extra risk at a time when you would just imagine that uh, risk would be off the table. But because yeah. of head, as you said, it's all getting backstopped, every yeah, part of this it's market. It's all getting back. You're exactly right. And uh, I think backstopping not just equities, but kind of all risk assets uh, in general. And uh, as Katie mentioned, the default risk remains relatively low in the high yield space, so they are selectively uh, taking a look there. Well, one of the industries to be hit the hardest and certainly the earliest from the economic impact of the pandemic was the airline business. And now the question is, as the airlines start to add back flights slowly, to what extent can the airlines ever recover, particularly as it relates to the business flyer, who has historically been the backbone and the majority of the revenue for most airlines? You get a sense of kind of where we are and how this might play out. We welcome Brendan Case, Industrial Aerospace and Chemicals Team Leader for Bloomberg News. Brendan, thanks so much for joining us here. You know, I live close to Newark Airport, and I can tell you the traffic is still nowhere near to what normal flows are. I just don't hear and see the planes overhead and I guess that means business folks aren't flying as much. They're not getting jumping back on those planes, are they? Yeah, that's right. In fact, nobody's flying that much these days. And as a matter of fact, I live close to uh, Dallas-Fort Worth Airport, um, seeing exactly the same thing as you. Um, there's been a big, big collapse in, in flying of all kinds, but with 
this having lasted about four months now, um, the, the, the big concern that's emerging uh, for, the, for, for the business of airlines in the future is just whether, you know, whether to what extent business travelers will come back. As you say, it's always been the backbone of the industry, um, and yet many, many of the nation's road warriors have just made do with video conferencing or other tools um, during a time when they can't travel. At the same time, there will have to be some kind of resumption of it at some point, right? I mean, how do you do enough due diligence by Zoom? Is it possible? It's probably not possible to replace traveling entirely with something like Zoom. And I think that everyone agrees that business travel will come back from the current levels, which are which are so low. Um, there's client meetings to be had. There's sales to be made. Uh, you name it. There's always going to be a need for business travel. Um, whether that gets back to 2019 levels, though, is another question entirely. There's sort of a gathering uh, consensus that maybe the industry doesn't get back to that level. And even the CEO of Delta said last week that uh, that maybe the 2019 volumes don't come back entirely. We should learn more this week with other airlines reporting. So, Brendan, what do you think the airlines are planning to do to the extent that uh, the business travel does not come back to the pre-pandemic levels? Is it simply a function of shrinking their business, shrinking their fleets, that type of thing? Yeah, I think that probably the, the, the game plan for the foreseeable future um, next couple of years um, is probably to become just much smaller companies, um, take a lot of cost out. I think we'll see a lot of employees leaving, um, many of them voluntarily, We'll learn a lot more about involuntary cuts um, in October. Um, and I think what you'll end up with is, is airlines trying to get to a much smaller cost base um, and perhaps, you know, being able to still be profitable, but just as, as smaller companies compared with what they once were. So what airlines will benefit the most, do you think, Brendan? Uh, obviously, the discount carriers will still need to be discount carriers in some way. Or, or do we end up with sort of one one tier pricing yeah it's a great question you know an interesting an interesting thing in terms of the way investors view the industry is that uh southwest which of course sort of pioneered the discount model um is now a little more valuable than 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 delta um which had always been you know known for a big focus on on business travel um and i think that probably we will see uh more of a shift to, uh, you know, the, the discount model, um, certainly we won't lose the whole idea of business class and, and, and premium seating. Um, but on balance, there could be less of that in the industry than, than just, uh, you know, coach. Brendan, is there growing concern in the industry about we might see one, a major U.S. airline at some point go bankrupt should this uh, lower level of travel continue? You know, that's always been a concern. In fact, the CEO of Boeing, no less, uh, sounded that warning earlier this year. Uh, you know, the U.S. government, of course, stepped in with billions of dollars of aid. Um, and the airlines since then have been, been cutting costs really aggressively. That said, um, it really just depends on, on how many uh, passengers come back. At current levels, I think that there's no way the industry could survive in its, in its existing configuration. Um, the hope would be that sometime by maybe next year, 
um, you know, people start to come back a little more, um, even though the airlines themselves will tell you that they don't expect a full recovery for another two or three years. Yeah, it's uh, it's a really fascinating one because they do say that they have military-grade air conditioners and so on, but you really have to wonder at what point people will be just comfortable regularly standing in line, going to an airport, taking public transportation to and from an airport, and so on. Our thanks to you, and we will keep on this. Obviously, Brendan Case, Industrial Aerospace and Chemicals Team Leader, is a lot of work ahead of him, Paul Sweeney. Paul, yes. would you be inclined to take a flight? You know, not if I have to. I have to. I would, uh, but I just don't see that that risk reward right now. Uh, it just isn't there for me. Yeah, it's, and it's exactly that, isn't it? It's how much risk are you willing to take, and are you willing to, you know, sort of put in others' way? And yep. uh, if you know, if taking a flight isn't necessary, then I guess why would you even consider doing it? Different thing with the subway system or other types of technology, because at least in flights, it does seem like the air conditioning systems are a little bit higher grade, more military grade and so on. I I think I'd be even less inclined to to take a subway right now. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, the ridership on the MTA is down dramatically and they need some help on this next uh, fiscal stimulus plan. Yeah, for sure. All right. We will continue to keep an eye on all of the transportation options during this coronavirus nightmare. This is Bloomberg Markets with Paul Sweeney and Bonnie Quinn on Bloomberg Radio. Let's talk about mask wearing or lack thereof. It's just an extraordinary story here. I'm just seeing that in France today ordered mandatory mask use in indoor public spaces. Hong Kong and Australia tighten mask rules. So it seems to be a global phenomenon that if you wear a mask, and we hear that from the medical professionals, the scientists, uh, that is a good way to fight the spread of the COVID virus. Yet here in the United States, not so much the case. It's actually become very politicized to get a sense of kind of what's driving that. Uh, we welcome uh, Bloomberg Opinion editor Frank Wilkinson. Frank, thanks, thanks so much for joining us here. How did this war on mask really develop in the U.S.? Well, I think it's a pretty complicated phenomenon, so I, I hesitate to give you one answer for that. But uh, obviously it has a very significant political component, which uh, stems from President Trump's uh, resistance to masks. And it also has a psychological component that's a little bit harder to grapple with. Uh, I just saw something today about a... Uh, I just saw something today about a store in Northern California that refuses to serve people who wear masks. So, you know, this is not about personal notions of liberty. This is really about a kind of, uh, of group political resistance to, uh, you know, to uh, a partisan idea in their heads. Will it extend to other things? So I think there is a little bit of trepidation out there that if we do end up getting a vaccine or several vaccines that work or that may work, that many people will decide that they don't want to participate either and that will have an impact on how much they function. Well, that's a pretty horrifying prospect. Um, There obviously is a pretty strong anti-vax movement in the United States and in other countries as well. Uh, We have seen uh, state public health uh, facilities be able to to deal with that, you know, with legislation uh, in uh, California, for instance, mandating a certain amount of uh, uh, vaccine for kids going to school. So they really restrict the number of parents who can opt out. And those things are, are, you know, potentially going to come into play here. 
I don't know exactly what the, the, the lay of the land will be on that. We have to see. Uh, we don't know who the president will be. We don't know what the political context will be. So uh, I, I hesitate to draw conclusions about that yet. So is this something that your reporting indicates, you know, if there were uh, strong, consistent messaging from the White House or just from the federal government in general, that this issue could have been mitigated somewhat here in the U.S.? Or is this just the way we're wired here? Well, I think there are two things. I think it's the way some people are wired, and I think they got reinforcement uh, for that wiring from the President of the United States, who obviously is a very significant modeler of behavior. Uh, The President, even yesterday uh, in his interview that was uh, broadcast with Fox News, was completely all over the map uh, on mass, saying, you know, they're fine, but he's also resistant, and, and Dr. Fauci resisted them at first. So he's still not giving a clear message about masks. What we have seen is they are rising in use, even among Republicans. So even in the last few weeks, according to polls, uh, you're seeing increased use among Democrats, independents, and Republicans. It's still lowest among Republicans, which uh, points to the partisan problem, but uh, it is rising. So somewhere along the line, uh, and in states in particular, I mean, you've got you know Republican governors uh, like the governor of Ohio who've been pretty good on this from the beginning. Uh, so it's really more of a problem focused in some areas like the governor of Georgia and in the White House itself. So at some point, will all of the municipalities, governors, mayors, and everything be almost forced into making a, a public wearing of the mask. I mean, the president, uh, finally, it took a long time, but at, you know, at an event recently, the president did wear a mask and said he had no problem with wearing masks. Well, but he clearly does have a problem wearing, <laughs> wearing a mask yeah. uh, because he refused to do it again, and then again he gave a muddled answer uh, to, to Fox News. So uh, what we saw last week in Georgia was uh, Governor Kemp uh, overriding localities, municipalities, saying they could not enforce a mask uh, plan. So, you know, we're not out of the woods on the politics of this yet. There are a lot of Republican governors and, and mayors, to the extent there are mayors, who are going their own way on this, uh, resisting the White House track. But you've got governor of a very large state, Georgia, uh, just reinforcing behavior that public health officials pretty much unanimously tell us now is very important to contain the uh, pandemic. Yeah, it seems like there needs to be some leadership. I'm just not sure at what level, because I look, look in your column, uh, Frank. I mean, even in, within Southern California, Orange County, the schools there, we're going to reopen and you don't have to wear masks. Whereas neighboring San Diego and, and Los Angeles, they're not going to open. So, I mean, just within that very close regional area of Southern California, widely different policies. Well, you have widely different politics. You know, there's still a, a pretty strong uh, conservative basis in, in Orange County. Um, it's changed a lot. A lot of Democrats uh, flipped seats in Orange County and in the Congress in 2018. Uh, but that particular board, which, which cannot mandate uh, what happens in Orange County is is really offering recommendations, uh, but that particular board is dominated by local Republicans, and those Republicans are following the path of Donald Trump and 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 Kemp in Georgia, and not uh, 
people like the Ohio governor and others who, you know, are, are really trying to grapple with the problem directly. So what about the other countries? I mean, if, you know, Hong Kong has gone back on lockdown and so on, you know, places like Asia never had a problem wearing masks. They were pretty, you know, happy to embrace mask wearing even in regular times. Do you ever foresee a time when that becomes the norm in the United States? It's hard to see, but I also don't have a uh, vision of what kind of pandemics we're going to face over the next mm-hmm. years. Uh, I think it really, again, it, it depends on a couple things. It depends on the health threat, and it depends a lot on the political context. I mean, obviously, if George W. Bush were the president now, or Barack Obama were the president now, they would be dealing with this in a very different way than Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump, I mean, just to take the the basic realities of this situation for Trump, this virus is killing people, it's damaging the economy, and it's frankly destroying his re-election campaign. And yet he is unable, psychologically it appears, unable to come to grips with it in any kind of reasonable fashion. Frank. It is wonderful to speak with you. Looking forward to the next time. Frank Wilkinson is Bloomberg Opinion Editor, writes editorials on politics and U.S. domestic policy primarily. And his latest one, The War in Masks is Another Lost Cause, is out right now. This is Bloomberg Markets with Paul Sweeney and Bonnie Quinn on Bloomberg Radio. Well, we saw that big deal today, Chevron buying Noble for $5 billion. Uh, Effectively, Mike Worth, the CEO, saying, yeah, you know, it was an attractive asset at a very attractive price, and that reflects the fact that the energy patch, the U.S. energy patch, has been hit brutally hard for by this pandemic and the economic impact. But we have got a little piece of bright news today in addition to that M&A trade. Halliburton, the big oil services provider, uh, provided uh, some pretty good numbers today. The stock's up 6% to break it all down. We welcome Scott Levine. He covers all things energy uh, for us for Bloomberg Intelligence. So, Scott, let's start with Halliburton here. Stock's up 6%, so I guess the street likes what they heard. What were your takeaways? Yeah, no, I think uh, the news basically from a macro standpoint, you know, while obviously weak in line with the operating environment, probably not weaker than expected revenue, fell short by about $100 million, but more importantly, from an earnings standpoint, uh, a pretty big beat, primarily driven by cost controls and uh, their decremental margins uh, or the amount of earnings uh, they lose per dollar of revenue loss uh, reflected that cost control decremental margins were only 15%, uh, which was lower than expected. So they're about 75% of the way through a cost savings program they announced in April, uh, which drove the upside in the earnings. And equally important, if not more important, the free cash flow was a big beat uh, at $456 million, reflecting not just the 65% reduction in CapEx year over year, uh, but an increase in operating cash flow as well. So, you know, all in, much better earnings performance and free cash flow performance on a slightly weaker top line than, uh, than was expected. How will the two companies be looking at the deal that was done today? And will either of them be in a position at some point to, you know, help out in terms of consolidation? Yeah, no, I think that the market environment in general is still pretty unsettled. So uh, I don't expect a lot of M&A and attrition while the market is in this period of disruption. I would think any deal making would likely be opportunistic and and one-off in nature, 
but in, you know, encourage, on the encouraging side, uh, the outlook for the second half of this year, uh, you know, a little bit lower than I think was initially expected. Halliburton indicated today uh, that uh, they see international spending down 15% for the full year. Uh, previously, they were expecting down 10 uh, North America is still expected to be down about 50%. So marginally weaker due primarily to weakness in Latin America. Uh, but the environment does seem to be stabilizing. They do expect the, the rig count to stabilize or bottom in the third quarter in completion activity or pressure pumping or fracking, whatever you want to call it. Uh, expect to be up marginally in the third quarter as well. So the industry environment does seem to be stabilizing. And once it does, albeit at very low levels, I think maybe you start to see deal activity pick up a bit more. So, Scott, if you're uh, these oil, big oil services providers like Halliburton and Schlumberger, which I know reports later this week, do you just, when you see oil crater like we did see it uh, back in the March-April time frame, we're still here at $40 on WTI, is your only strategy there, I mean, is your only course of action to just cut your expenses, operating expenses and capital expenses and cash flow outputs like dividends? Is that really the tried and true strategy here? I think it is. There's maybe one uh, small caveat, Paul, and, and, and you're hearing uh, Halliburton emphasize their investment in digital. Now, obviously, they're going to crack down on all investments in order to survive the storm. That's the most important thing. But the one thing they're emphasizing still, and I think you'll hear Schlumberger emphasize on Friday when they report earnings as well, is the longer-term commitment to the digital strategy uh, because they do see that as being central uh, to the value proposition that they offer the uh, the upstream uh, oil and gas producers in order to do what they do more efficiently and productively. So I think the idea here is batten down the hatch, is cut costs uh, to the minimum level possible while the environment stabilizes, but at the same time, in the investments and the focus on uh, the digital drilling and remote drilling and all these things that help their customers save money uh, because that, uh, you know, is essentially their reason for being is helping uh, oil and gas producers drill, frack, and uh, produce more efficiently. So, you know, expect that at the very least, uh, you know, commentary to that effect, uh, you know, while they maintain a, uh, a capital preservation strategy uh, in anticipation of an ultimate recovery. Scott, do these companies watch OPEC and OPEC Plus anymore? Is it a player, you know, to the extent that it used to be for U.S. companies at least? Yeah, no, it's interesting, uh, you know, in that the last couple of years, you know, North America has been much more of a focus, Fani, uh, and, and we saw, you know, an increase, a uh, much bigger increase in North America 2017-18 as the industry came out of the 2015-16 downturn. Last year, you saw North America really pull back even before the COVID-19 outbreak, and I think a lot of this focus on North America suggested that OPEC uh, and OPEC Plus was a much more marginal player. Uh, you know, obviously, them, uh, you know, the initial tussle between Saudi and Arabia and Russia, uh, you know, simultaneous with the COVID-19 outbreak was as much a factor in the uh, commodity markets breaking down and the industry outlook darkening uh, as as was the, you know, dimmer economic outlook. Now, obviously, they've gotten on the same page since then, and we saw most recently an agreement to start to taper production cuts uh, going forward as the economy starts to come out. 
uh, of the uh, of the crisis. But uh, I think that does suggest that OPEC and OPEC Plus is still a very mm-hmm. uh, important consortium, and probably yep. as North America has pulled back, that's become even more the case. So yes, I think is the answer to your question. Scott, thank you so much. That is Scott Levine, analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us there on Schlumberger and Halliburton. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.